this is Kara Foster from First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ in Madisonville, Kentucky, and you're listening to our sermons podcast. And if you want to find out more information, you can connect with us at www.madisonvilledisciples.org or come in person at 1030 College Drive, uh, Madisonville, Kentucky. Subscribe and enjoy these podcasts. So, there are a few different texts you can use when you preach the Sunday after Easter, and I've gotten pretty good at two days specifically, the Sunday after Easter and the Sunday after Christmas, because I don't know if you all are aware of this, but we make the joke that those are two holidays. They're called National Associate or Youth Minister Preaches Day, when the staff decides they're ready for a little vacation. And so a lot of us associates get to preach the same verses a lot, very often. And there's some really great ones that you can pull from. In all four Gospels, you can talk about the beginning of Acts if you really want to break the rules. There's some of our best memorable stories come from these times. You have Doubting Thomas, who sees the marks and believes. You see the Great Commission, something that has built the foundation of really American Christianity. In a few weeks, we'll talk about the ascension of Christ. There are a lot of places to go and stories to tell post-resurrection. But the story I've found the most interesting that I wish I had more of is something that's not really talked about in the Gospels. But I have to believe it was happening behind the scenes, not just in the minds of the 12 disciples, but in the mind of all those who had witnessed Jesus' ministry and had been following them. And that's this question. What are we now? See, they had seen Jesus do these miracles, but Jesus resurrected. This was a completely different thing. Jesus had been telling them about this new age and this new life to come, and they nodded their heads, and they acted like they understood it. And then a person came back from the dead and completely changed the way that they were thinking about their faith and their connection to God. So witnessing this had to change their minds. It had to kind of throw them for a loop that everything Jesus said has happened. So what do we do now? And that's such a big question. I wish we had 18, 20 more books of things Jesus did and said in between his resurrection and his ascension. We see the big points, as mentioned earlier, but I want to know what that day-to-day was like. What were the conversations over breakfast. I mean, if the disciples were the same people and Jesus taught in the same way, then they had to have some of the same conflicts. The disciples were probably comparing each one themselves to one another, wondering about who was best, or they were trying to figure out which teaching of Jesus's was the most important. It seems like after Jesus's ascension, the disciples didn't really know exactly what was going to happen. And I don't think that they expected a whole new church. And I like those stories because that's our experience. I mean, I don't think I'm breaking new ground here to say that a lot of times when we're put in charge of something, we're kind of just faking it until we get it right. I mean, I know sometimes I am. I don't want to say all the time uh, because that's not accurate, but a lot of times you're just like, maybe this will work, and then it works, and you're excited because you didn't know it would work either. And that is such a, to me, that's an exciting place to be, trying new things. So I can't imagine that the disciples knew exactly what was going to happen either. 
And so I was thinking, if Jesus taught the same way after his resurrection with parables and stories, then I don't imagine that a lot of easy questions were answered by Jesus in this time. So I think the question for the disciples is, what lessons do we want to teach? What did we hear Jesus speak? What stories did Jesus tell that we want to hear? And you could probably make the argument that the most important ones were made into the scripture. They became the gospels that we read. They became, they became part of Paul's letters that he wrote. And so I've been thinking in the last couple of weeks what I would like to preach about. Because unfortunately, though we get the stories, a lot of the interpretations we don't get. Good and bad thing. So I ran across a parable that I really enjoy, and after I read it, it just kind of got stuck in my head, and I was thinking about it over and over and over again. So I really felt like this was what I wanted to talk about this morning, and it is in the Gospel of Matthew. You see the scripture there on the screen, 13, verses 24 through 30. And the Gospel of Matthew has a really heavy focus on the division between early Christians and their Jewish siblings. And at this time, Christians were still gathering in synagogues, and they were a part of the Jewish day-to-day life. And Matthew spends a lot of his time trying to convince his Jewish audience that Christ is the Messiah that was talked about in the Hebrew Scriptures by the prophets as they were in their history. We see this in his genealogy. We see this in Matthew putting an emphasis on Jesus' fleeing to Egypt and then coming out of Egypt. We see a lot of other parallels in the life of Christ to the people of Israel. And a lot of the parables talk about division in the book of Matthew. And I think our parable today is probably talking about those same divisions as well. But I think the main takeaway from this parable I want us to look at is to examine our role in what I call and what other theologians have called the beloved community, what it looks like for us to be part of a community of faith and a greater community as a whole. So I'm going to start with verse 24 here. And Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring into my barn. Now, I think... That's one of my most recent favorite parables. And I think most people, they get hung up on the very last part. They get hung up on the burning part. Either they focus on uh, the wrath of God in an attempt to scare us or scare other people into being correct or doing good things, or that part makes them uncomfortable and they don't want to teach it at all because they don't know what to do with that very last part. Last week, Kara mentioned the the tension between the Jewish people and the Roman Empire leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. But now things had gotten even worse. Our best guess about when Matthew was written, Jerusalem was under siege or had already been taken over by the Roman government, and they were fighting their last bit of a rebellion. 
So this teaching that Jesus gave us in his ministry had to ring truer and truer. The weeds, as the Jewish people would see them, even as the early Christians would see them, weren't just in the garden. They were walking down the street with swords, and it was frightening. The Roman government was trying to control Israel, and by extension, the newly found church. And so the church was trying to figure out what its role would be. Should we fight with our families? Should we do what Rome says? Should we do nothing? And I think this parable is a parable of its time. Jesus' words during their tensions only became more and more true as the tensions rose. But the parable itself is pretty straightforward on the surface. There's a farmer who wants to grow wheat and he plants it correctly, but then in the night, I like air quotes, an enemy, comes and plants weeds in the garden. We don't know who that is. There are a lot more qualified people in this room to answer what effect weeds have when planted with a good crop. I asked Bill, and the answer he gave me didn't work for my sermon, so I didn't include it. But I'm sure it was completely correct, but it didn't work with what I was going for. So, But... There are, but in the story, the farmer doesn't seem concerned about the effects that the weeds are going to have on the wheat. The farmer doesn't jump to action or make any rash decisions. The farmer doesn't seek out the enemy to give him a piece of his mind or to take revenge or to have him harmed or harassed. He offers a calmer, more patient solution. Let both grow. That's it. The farmer knows his seed is good, and therefore, instead of running the risk of harming the good seed, he allows the weeds to grow alongside them. To me, on this Sunday after Easter, this informs who we are more than anything else. This is not a call to inaction. It's not a call for us just to leave the world alone. The farmer does not quit or throw up his hands and walk away from his crop, you hear him say he plans to still tend them, to grow and focus on the good wheat, nurturing it and letting it grow until a time where it can be harvested. The weeds, it seems, are not doing any harm to the wheat. So the farmer recognizes that it's better for them to be together than to try to separate them. I read this parable as a call for us to exist in our own world, not to separate ourselves from those who are different, those who we may consider weeds, but to live in community, even when it's uncomfortable, even when people are different than we are. The weeds are a small inconvenience, not a mortal injury. The crops will still grow. They can still be harvested. And at the end of the parable, the wheat can still be used for its intended purposes. The servants in the story don't get a say in what happens to the weeds. That is the farmer, and from my perspective, God. God gives everything in this story a chance to grow. While knowing when it is time for the harvest, everything will work out in the end. A theologian friend of mine said it like this, talking about judgment and parables and things like that. He says that judgment is the very first fair thing any of us in our lives will experience because it is the only thing that will be perfect in its time. 
So when you use judgment to try to scare someone or you use judgment to try to influence people, you do that out of fear. But judgment in Scripture that Jesus talks about is based wholly in the fairness and justice, love, grace, and mercy of God. It is not something to be feared. It is something to be anticipated, something we know will happen to the world. And I love parables. And I love that these stories are the way that we get to hear our faith. Like I said, Bill heard this story as a gardener very differently than I did. To use another example, I believe a parent hears the prodigal son parable a lot differently than a young person or someone who's childless. And that difference makes our community better. But the stories do fall short. Because let's face it, we're talking about real people here and not plants. Once again, I'm no horticultural expert, but I don't believe that there's any way a weed, when planted, can become a piece of wheat. I've consulted Wikipedia, and I have done two Google searches, so I'm an expert on the matter at this point. So I, don't, I think that's where we're different. We're people, and I want to show you this beautiful stole that I am wearing this morning. It was given to me as a gift by Wayne Edwards, one of our formal ministers here after my ordination. And if you can't see it, it has children of all different colors and shapes and sizes, and he gave it to me as a gift. He invited me into his home, and we sat and had a fantastic talk for two or three hours where we got to know more about each other's ministries and about each other's pasts and our, and our beliefs. And Wayne, if you're watching, I'm sure you are this morning. Thank you so much for your beautiful gift. But I, can, but I know that there are people who would have looked at Wayne and said, you're going to give your stole to that guy? Eh, he's not wheat. I know Zach Hardy. He's a weed. I'm not saying I'm the worst person in the world or ever was, but there's times I've been unhelpful and lazy and uncaring, a bit of a pain in the backside as some of my teachers and other people might have called me growing up. And I'm sure there are people now who look at what I do and go, him, really, that guy who I knew in college is on the straight and narrow. And I say, well, mostly, mostly straight and narrow. As people, we're complex. And we may move from being a wheat to a weed before and after coffee. There's some mornings I wake up, I'm a weed. By lunch, I'm probably a piece of wheat again. The good news this morning is that God is patient. Patient with us. Patient with everyone. And offers us a chance every second that we're breathing to do what wheat does. To nourish the world. We have to be okay with God offering that same grace and mercy to those who we think are weeds, to those who don't nourish our lives, or who we may think there's no way. God's patience and continuing offering of redemption highlight the season we are in after Easter. All creation can be new. All of us can be new. This leads me back to what I think is a more traditional quote-unquote, uh, scripture for today. 
and it's one of my favorites. I preached it last Easter, which is why I didn't want to preach it this Easter. It's Peter around the charcoal fire with Jesus. And there's so much in this story, but I don't want to dissect it. I want us just to think about it in terms of our parable. Peter denied Christ openly. In fact, kind of all of his disciples did. And we see that. All the disciples, not all the disciples, some of the disciples are together fishing, and that's where Jesus finds them. Peter and the rest of the people probably feel like a weed. He betrayed his best friend, his teacher, his rabbi, the person who fed him and blessed him. And then he sees him come back. You got to feel about that big in that moment. But what does Jesus do? Jesus offers Peter a meal and forgiveness and a charge to go into the world and continue the ministry that Christ began. It's the exact same thing we're offered over and over again. What are we now? Who are we now after the resurrection? We're a spiritual people who are offered a chance at redemption with every single breath we take. And I need it. Because from breath to breath, sometimes I can be a different person. We are people who are called to extend that same grace to everyone we meet. Because we don't know who the weeds are. We are but servants working in the field. We may say to God, got to get rid of that one. We may say it to each other. That's a weed. We got to get rid of that weed. And God will deny us just like he did in the parable. Because God knows what a weed is and what a weed is. And thank God that's not our responsibility or our decision to make. Amen.